You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hi everyone, it's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse. I'm popping into your ears quickly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all around the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend, which tends to focus on Indigenous texts and subversive seminary during the week that focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group, which is currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We also record these episodes in community and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review this podcast in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode. Simon Moore, you didn't send me a uh, bio so I'm tempted to almost um, just make one up for you. Um, maybe a look behind, Drew, what would go on any bio is that Simon is actually a really wonderful father and partner, mm-hmm. and I, I love his family dearly. Um, Simon is someone who's deeply connected um, uh, to, to the rhythm of the liturgical life in ways that form him, prayer, um, is incredibly important to Simon and it shows up in all of his life uh, as well as his garden and uh, his uh, carving and uh, mosaics um, expressing this commitment to a a pace of life that can be open to the spirit. It also shows up in his activism. Uh, Simon and I... um, I think I've been arrested with you, Simon, more than maybe any other person. Or maybe that's not completely true, but it's it's up there. Um, and uh, Simon has spearheaded um, so many spaces, providing a prayerful presence in what is often quite stressful, uh, in spaces that often experience high burnout. And Simon has been a prayerful pastoral um, presence for uh, many movements that are um, naming uh, the realities of uh, militarism, um, the incarceration of people simply seeking safety. Uh, On on a number of fronts, Simon has consistently been present and been present to um, mentor and uh, mould others in a life-giving way of uh, uh, confronting the systems that run on death instead of life and he's my good mate so simon it's it's a joy to have you with us how's that for a bio uh that's way better than anything i would have come up with so um i'm just gonna (laughs) just gonna use that from now on thank you yeah simo um uh you haven't converted to mormonism i have not uh, but you you do prefer rather than the term pastor um you're a Baptist, which can mean any number of things to any number of people, depending True. on. Um, uh, we, we can go from, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, through to Martin King in terms of what it calls to mind. But when when you say Baptist and uh, when you say elder, <laughs> what's going on there? W- would you bring those things together for people mm. in ways that might explain a little bit of your story? 
Yeah, well, I'll do my best. Uh, I uh, certainly grew up in the Baptist tradition. That's been um, uh, my church experience and my church home uh, here in Victoria, Australia, um, where I live on Wurundjeri country. That's, uh, I guess, probably different to the United States experience of Baptists. Uh, we're much more, uh, much more eclectic um, and uh, actually hold a reasonable amount of diversity, particularly here in Victoria. Uh, we, we hold a, a quite a, a wide variety of diversity from, uh, I guess, your fairly stock standard conservative evangelical to, um, uh, well, Baptist monks, <laughs> uh, the community uh, of the Transfiguration, uh, which I uh, am joining. So, um, I guess it's though that crew and my connection with that crew that really um, solidified for me uh, the journey towards eldership as opposed to uh, being a minister or a pastor. Um, eldership coming very much out of um, more out of the Eastern tradition um, or even really out of um, the Celtic, Celtic. Uh, tradition yeah. as well, um, which is certainly my, um, my background. Um, as, so as a both, Cornish man, both into yeah, both in terms of Cornwall and Ireland, um, uh, those two places uh, sit in my background, and um, the Celtic experience there has been of the Anamkara, the the soul friend, if you like. Um, but yeah, certainly in the Eastern Church, they've recognised eldership as um, as a charism. It's a it's a gift of the spirit. It's not a uh, if you like a role or a. Uh, um, an official um, uh, authority figure. It is, in fact, someone who uh, sits uh, in the background, really, um, mm. someone who walks alongside uh, people, just um, journeying with them, really, and, and hearing and calling out um, that of God in their journey. Um, so that's, that's my kind of day-to-day -day is just really uh, as much as possible spending time with God myself um, so that I can be um, hearing the voice of God in the journey of others as I journey with them. Mm. So maybe for many people, a, um, an introduction to that paradigm might be um, the brothers Karamazov and um, uh, Father Zosima or um, Elder Zosima or Starets Zosima uh, where there's a, a literary paradigm for people to kind of enter into uh, both this um, Eastern Orthodox paradigm for the, a, a prayerful person in community um, that leads um, a, 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 almost from behind uh, mm. rather than out front. That's right. Um, and uh, a, a lovely introduction to um, those traditional uh, Celtic roles as well. Um, Simon, and that, if I could just, yeah, just yeah. add, I guess I, it was only through my encounter with um, the Holy Transfiguration uh, and their experience of eldership uh, and, in fact, their struggle with it and uh, the gift that it has been to that community uh, and my own eldering um, through Brother Graham Littleton, who um, mm. has just been incredibly important to me, that that, that, uh, that possibility emerged uh, and in fact expressed what I had been all along, uh, but hadn't been able to name in the Western tradition that 
I'd been a part of. So mm. I think that's really important to honour uh, Brother Graham in that. Yeah, um, somebody who's incredibly important to me in my journey as well, as well as that community. Mm. Simon, um, you've chosen, um, uh, or rather the, the lectionary has chosen for you, the Transfiguration. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm you guessing do. you're going to, Drew and I were joking before that um, you're just using us for sermon prep for Sunday. Um, are, are we in Mark 9? You were, we are in Mark 9 and you weren't far off really, but um, <laughs> I figure let's, uh, let's streamline these things, hey? Yeah. Would you, do you want me to read it or what's the... Yeah, please. Yeah, no worries. So yeah, for those who are following along, if you want to turn to Mark 9, uh, I'll be reading verses 2 to 10 um, and I'm in the NRSV. So six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Mo Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud there came a voice, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Amen. All right. Well, Simon, number one, um, it's just a pleasure to meet you. I know anytime um, Jared uh, hypes up some of his mates and um, I just get excited because I know he always runs in good circles. Um, so it's just a pleasure. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing some of your story. And for us, um, story and biography are theology. And so we just love to hear your story. So I, as you think about um, your encounters with the Bible and particularly your earliest encounters, like are there particular mm -hmm. memories you have in terms of your earliest encountering encounters with the Bible? Mm. Yeah, I guess my, um, uh, my parents, my grandparents, um, particularly on my dad's side, um, have always been, uh, have been Christian and have uh, raised me in that way. So I grew up in a church, um, relatively small church, I suppose, in uh, the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, southeastern suburbs. Um, it was a church that my grandparents uh, actually um, formed. Uh, they were part of actually founding it. So uh, my whole family was really well known and loved in that place, yeah. um, including my parents, who are deeply faithful people. And um, uh, so, yeah, I guess I grew up around the Bible, around the Bible being revered, really, particularly being uh, in Baptist circles. That's uh, that's a big thing, you know, sola scriptura is kind of uh, one of the big, uh, big things for um, Baptist folks and, uh, and the Bible was kind of front and centre every week. It was usually those, um, 
awful, awful good news Bibles with, uh, you know, little line drawings in and those sorts of things. Yeah. Appalling translation, but um, but it was really... Simo, it. We, we literally had uh, people on recently who, who expressed the opposite about, the, do you remember those great, and they had the drawings in it? <laughs> that, that, that's that's literally what um, uh, the Glanville brothers said j just recently, but uh, I appreciate <laughs> you expressing the opposite opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know, it it gave, it made them accessible to people, which I think is is a very good thing. But the translation wasn't terrific. So, um, <laughs> yes, certainly the uh, the pictures were good for me as a kid. But um, I probably preferred Sunday school, really, where we really got to. I I I'm even now a bit of a nerd. Um, so uh, back then, uh, if something seemed important to the people who are important to me, I was right into it. So yeah, I got right into the Bible. I read it as much as I could. I, um, in fact, by the time I was about 13, I think I'd read it through cover to cover twice. Um, and I guess all of the learning, all of the stuff that soaked in still sits with me today. Yeah. So um, that's been a, a really precious thing to kind of continue to hold. Yeah. At the same time, I had all these questions and uh, struggles and, you know, things that I thought that can't be right. <laughs> um, uh, so it, it probably wasn't, I was pretty shy kid as well. So um, yeah, actually just uh, voicing those uh, took me a while. Simon, would you name at that stage of your journey, the scriptures as something that was liberating or oppressive or, or how did that evolve for you as um, you, you continued to journey with the text? Mm, it was probably intended to be liberating um, or no, probably. Uh, so, so for me, certainly uh, politically and socially, it very much kind of reinforced the way things were. Um, the way it was communicated was it was really only meant to be uh, revolutionary or, or turn the world upside down if you... Um, had been, say, for example, living a life of crime or um, uh, sleeping around or uh, swearing, perhaps, or, you know, doing drugs, so, something that was kind of a personal uh, failing on your own part. Um, and so you'd hear these testimonies, you know, of people who had gone through uh, these kinds of things and had turned their life around, you know. That was the kind of turning upside down it was always personal it was always individual it was always around um people's personal choices um and that uh it was just a very thin <laughs> very uh thin gospel i suppose um ironically of course years later my own life of crime would come from jesus uh, and from my <laughs> uh, desire to follow him more faithfully so um I don't know. It ended up the other way. Is that true of your swearing as well, Simon? Or is that... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I still can't bring myself, man. It's so deeply, that that shame is so deeply, <laughs> deeply ingrained. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I resonate deeply. Everything you just said, I was like, I mean, I grew up in the church that I grew up, it was a black congregation that 
officially was non-denominational, but we were black Baptists, like yeah. just without the name, you know, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, I, you just, as you were talking, it just revives memories of, you know, people testifying, right. About what God had done for them and, mm-hmm. you know, used to sell yeah, drugs yeah. or was homeless and all these personal stories, which I mean, something powerful in terms of just the significance of delivering but it was always personal and it didn't have the bigger implications for For uh, the kind of trouble that you're talking about the good trouble right Right. and and for me and and for most you know like my brothers and sisters uh for folks we knew who had grown up in the church it did make us wonder like what what's the point of this for us you know like if we you know the idea really of church every Sunday was to make us feel guilty enough about the small choices we'd made that week that we would fall back on, uh, on Jesus. And it just, you know, that didn't seem like good news to me. You know, it was essentially (laughs) just trying to make us feel bad, uh, as bad as possible so that we would then be, you know, thrown back on the forgiveness of Jesus for whatever, you know, things we might've done that week. Not that we were perfect by any stretch, but, you know, you'd kind of been enculturated into this sense of niceness that you're supposed to be uh, living, but um, that you did reasonably well at. Um, And so the rest was just left to ramping up the guilt. (laughs) So I'm curious, as you talk about, you know, your experience um, uh, with your Christian community and your journey and this guilt, and, and I'm curious, like, as you got into where you are now, like, how did your unique experience shape your lens for how you read scripture now? Mm. Well, I guess to, that's a good question. So to, to jump a long way forward, because obviously I've, I've gone through quite a, a number of, I guess, transformations over that time. The first mm. probably lens that shifted for me was... Um, was coming across nonviolence. So very early in um, my training as a as a minister, I, I I grew up asking all of these questions about what the gospel was, um, because it seemed to me that if Jesus was this great communicator, um, and the gospel was that um, Jesus uh, had come uh, to die in humanity's place, so that we would have a relationship with God and go to heaven why didn't Jesus just say that? Like, why? <laughs> like, why, why do you waste so much time, why right? To, why, do yeah, why didn't take, Jesus like, preach the gospel? <laughs> right, exactly. Like, why didn't Jesus just, like, why didn't he just say that instead of we having us having to kind of piece together this from this verse over here and this verse over here? So it just never overly made sense to me. Um, and... Uh, so I wrestled with that for a number of years. And in fact, it was in, in my ordination interview of all places that I probably most articulately questioned this for the first time, right? Like talk about the wrong time and place to <laughs> question the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. It was like, I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> um, and thankfully at the time, one of the uh, folks who was in that interview said it doesn't make sense to me either, Simon, which I deeply appreciated because that was the gospel I'd grown up with. That was all that there was. Um, and 
so to in my early training uh, come across um, nonviolence uh, and particularly a few theologians who have been uh, particularly um, important to me. Um, for me, it was the the picture I use is of a lens uh, that makes things clear. So mm. it was like Jesus was blurry one minute and then realising that Jesus was this social political figure uh, who was nonviolent, like brought Jesus into focus, into this kind of sharp focus that yeah. just made sense of uh, the biblical witnesses I had read it. Um, yeah. That reminds so, me of the Mark passage, right? The yeah, Jesus we're only one chapter over. Right, right. Yeah, yes. And then he gets fully healed and then he sees some clarity. That's that's good. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bl yeah so blind Bartimaeus. Right. Exactly, yeah. So that that's that's what it was like for me. It was like, oh, my gosh, this makes total sense of Jesus. Um, he's a nonviolent political revolutionary, right? Like, yeah. And that's, that's yeah. our call too. Um, and so it totally made sense of all of those things. And uh, I guess me being as slow and um, uh, as thoughtful as I am, it took me a long time to actually get around to making some decisions that actually um, put that into practice, I suppose, uh, in more practical ways. But I got there eventually. Um, more recently, though, um, I think for me, the shift to contemplative, contemplative emphasis has brought another lens on top of that um, that still remains and, and sits at the bedrock, I think, of my faith, uh, my understanding of Jesus. Um, but more recently, um, a hermeneutic of attention um, has become kind of almost my primary lens, if you like, um, that what we pay attention to affects what we see uh, and how we see. And um, uh, there's, there's a great scene in um, the film Lady Bird. I don't know if people have seen the film Lady Bird, but um, it's kind of a coming-of-age story about um, a young girl in last year of high school um, and she has this conversation with uh, her principal where she's talking about her college entrance exam or essay and uh, talking about how, um, uh, in the principal's opinion, this essay shows how much she loves the city she lives in. Now, she's been spending the whole uh, film talking about how much she hates the city she lives in, Sacramento. And so she's kind of puzzled by this um, you know, response. Um, and she says, uh, you know, I was just describing the city and, and her principal says, uh, well, it comes across as love. Uh, and she says, well, yeah, sure. I, I guess I pay attention. Um, and her principal, who's a nun, uh, says, don't you think maybe they're the same thing? Love and attention. Maybe they're the same thing. Love and attention. I, I think um, for me that uh, kind of captures something of what it is um, to cultivate uh, a life which is deliberate in what we pay attention to mm -hmm. in order that we might love the things that most need to be loved and the things which God is calling us to love. 
um, and uh, I guess cultivating a particular type of attention which best expresses the love that we've been shown. Um, so uh, more recently, I guess that has been my emphasis, as, as Jared talked in the beginning, um, I guess about slowing down, uh, about choosing what it is that we uh, spend time with, spend time doing, spend time noticing, um, everything from uh, consider the lilies, right? Probably mm -hmm. Jesus' most underrated uh, command mm -hmm. imperative. <laughs> um, here we've been growing uh, native food plants, including um, vanilla lilies, chocolate lilies, bulbine lilies, foods that um, Wurundjeri people, uh, Kulin people across the southeast of the country um, have been cultivating uh, as food plants since time immemorial um, and which largely got wiped out with um, European settlement. And so as part of our trying to live a life that acknowledges uh, their sovereignty in this place, um, mm. regrowing these plants has been uh, one practical step we've been trying to make. Um, and that requires attention because that requires uh, collecting seed. It requires uh, watching those seeds grow, germinate, um, being able to recognise their first leaves, their cotyledons, their first true leaves, so we can tell them apart from weeds when we go through the garden. Uh, it requires cultivating the kind of soil that they'll thrive in um, and then enjoying the flowers that result from that. So there's this kind of process of attention that's required even just of the recovery of these kinds of things, which is an act of love. Um, and that's, I guess it's, that's one small example of, um, uh, I guess, cultivating the kind of attention that, uh, that demonstrates love, not in a way that's kind of, hey, look at us, um, but is just faithful and, and plugging away in the background. Mm. Beautiful. Some would love for you to take that attention and uh, apply it to this particular text that um, I know is, is so uh, important and meaningful for, for you personally, but also in terms of it being uh, um, the, the namesake for a community that has um, contributed so much to our spiritual formation, the Transfiguration community. Um, would you walk us through this passage um, and the particulars of, of Mark's passage um, for its potential to turn our world upside down? Sure. Let's, uh, let's do that. Um, so, yeah, I guess for those of us who follow the church year, um, and that has been one of the disciplines that's been really um, important to my formation and to the community here at Grace Tree. Um, uh, this is the last, this Sunday coming up is the last Sunday of the Epiphany season. Uh, the Sunday before Lent, um, 
Uh, so next Wednesday will be Ash Wednesday, which will enter into a time of uh, repentance. And so there's this sort of period before that of um, a series of epiphanies of appearances of Jesus. And this is uh, the last of those for this particular season. Um, when we approach this story, um, and in fact, probably all scripture really, um, the, my temptation, uh, probably most Western folks' temptation is to treat it as a puzzle to be worked out or um, something to be understood uh, intellectually. Um, so I, I just want to state that at the outset. That's my, <laughs> that's my temptation um, and, and a temptation I'm aware of and have in front of me so that I can try and avoid it. Um, and so instead, what I invite folks to do is, is to undergo this passage um, because Again, for me as a um, white Western male, my tendency is to want to control the text, <laughs> to, to essentially want to dominate the text uh, mm -hmm. so I can, um, you know, fit it into my existing schemas or uh, control it in some way. And so I need to be really intentional about allowing myself to undergo it um, in a process in which I'm not in control. So with that in mind... Um, the previous, the passage before this, I think it's important to, very often with passages, we don't look at what's before or what's after, we just look at it in isolation. Um, before this, um, there's been an event which uh, gives shape uh, to, this, um, to this transfiguration event, and that um, is in fact the, the passage begins with six days later uh, so we get a bridge uh, from that event which we should be paying attention to um, and that event is Peter making his great declaration that Jesus is the Messiah right um, he makes this great declaration uh, Jesus explains well that means um, that I'm going to get strung up on a cross uh, Peter of course understandably um, is not down with this uh, and, in fact, wants to argue back to Jesus, no, 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 I think you're mistaken about this. Um, and so Jesus goes on to say, uh, if anyone wants to be my followers, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow. And so that is what we get as the intro to this story, if you like, or the, that's mm. the, the preceding context. And so it's six days later we're told that Jesus takes... The inner three, um, Peter and James and John, the inner circle, um, upper mountain. Mountains, of course, are places of encounter with God all through the Hebrew scriptures. Um, in their cosmology, it's the closest place to heaven. Um, it's a place where God meets with humanity. Um, and so immediately we're told Jesus' appearance changes. Uh, he is, uh, in this translation, transfigured. Uh, the, the Greek word is probably closest to metamorphosis or um, the word we get metamorphosis from. Um, he's changed, he's transfigured, he's transformed. Um, his clothes become dazzling white. Uh, what we see is Jesus' glory being revealed. Um, 
in icons, which um, as a good Baptist, Sola Scriptura have not come <laughs> naturally to me, um, but which I have come to deeply love. Um, uh, in icons of the Transfiguration, Jesus is often depicted with, it, it depicts this glory um, in the form of uh, what's known as a mandala or a, an almond-shaped uh, brightness which appears behind Jesus. The almond shape um, is there for it, it has, has a number of, of symbolisms, um, but one of those symbolisms is an almond shape is, um, is where there are two overlapping circles. Um, it's the space that's created where the, the two circles overlap. In other words, where opposites, if you like, are brought together, um, there's a kind of overlapping of, um, of spheres. Um, and so that's what we see in this moment, Jesus' glory being revealed uh, as uh, what's known in the Eastern Church as the, theant the Theanthropos, the God-man. That is Jesus being both 100% God and 100% human. And there's this brightness that radiates out of him. A brightness that in the Hebrew Bible is known as the Shekinah or the Shekinah, depending where you went to school. Um, if we think of Moses meeting with God um, and when he returns uh, from that encounter, his face is shining because of the brightness of God. God can't be seen because of, of that brightness. Um, and so what is revealed in this encounter um, is the glory of the God-man, Jesus. But one of the things that um, I've come to realise, and in particular through um, my brothers and sisters at the Trans Holy Transfiguration community, is that this is not just Jesus' transfiguration. This is, in fact, um, the destiny of all humanity. Mm -hmm. This is God's glory fully revealed. It's what it means to be fully human and fully divine at the same time, but it's a picture of our destiny, your destiny, my destiny. What Irenaeus um, uh, talked about as uh, the glory of God is, uh, it's often uh, said that what he said was uh, a human being fully alive, but it, what he actually said is the glory of God is a living human being, a living human being. The glory of God is a living human being. That is to say, that is us. We are, <laughs> we are the glory of God. Uh, we're not made for the glory of God. We are made to be the glory of God. And in particular, a, a living human being, a human being for whom death is not, for whom death has no mm. hold, someone who's awakened to our God-given self. Uh, what Merton calls our true self. Um, I think uh, this distinction between uh, our true self and our false self is part of what Jesus is getting at in that previous passage uh, about those who do not give up themselves, deny themselves. Um, and so it's leading into this. Jesus is saying denying yourself means discovering your true self which means discovering this confluence of both your humanity and divinity revealed. It's what the Eastern Church calls our theosis, 
um, our humanity and divinity coming together to be revealed. Um, and we see this in this moment being revealed in Jesus. Um, that's a self that exists in all of us right now. Um, it's a self that often gets obscured. Um, and this is where, again, attention becomes so deeply important uh, in our recovering of our true self. Because our false self very often, the, the self that is that we kind of create um, as a result of our hurts, our fears, our rejection, um, the self we think we need to be in order to overcome those things, uh, that often obscures our false self, um, our, our true self, sorry, which lies underneath. Um, and it lies underneath untouched. It, it can't be destroyed. It can't even be damaged. It can only ever be obscured or covered over. Um, and so it lies there waiting for us to pay attention to it. Um, what we see in this encounter with Jesus is, is his... Uh, his transfiguration, uh, a transfiguration that calls to us as well. Our true self, um, of course, is not just the glory of God. It is the glory. Uh, it is, in fact, our participation in, in God. Um, and so what transfiguration shows us, I think, isn't just that Jesus had this weird moment on a mountaintop, but it is, in fact, the destiny of all of us. Um, that is what we are called to, the end goal of our existence. We're made to manifest the glory of God. Um, and so this is a picture of it, if you like, a, a visible picture of it. Um, so he's joined by two folks, uh, Moses and Elijah. Um, they're not just there for celebrity cred. Uh, you know, here's this guy, he's hanging out with some famous folks. Um, on one level, of course, they're kind of there as symbols of the law and the prophets, um, and that's important, mm. both of which find their fulfilment in Jesus. But I also think they're there because of their journeys, their personal journeys. Um, Moses, who begins his life uh, in uh, Pharaoh's palace, or doesn't begin his life there, but um, ends up in Pharaoh's palace, ends up murdering um, an Egyptian and running away. Moses, who uh, struggles with his call to the Exodus. Uh, Moses, who, um, after receiving the law, including the words of the law, which say, do not kill, comes down the mountain to find Israelites um, gathered around a golden calf and immediately instructs the Levites to strap on their swords and indiscriminately slaughter 3,000 of their brothers and sisters. Um, Moses is a complicated guy. <laughs> uh, and he's he has this incredible violence in him. Uh, which seems to emerge on a regular basis. And yet at the end of his life, Moses is described as the meekest man to walk the earth. 
And so there's obviously been this kind of transformation over his life, um, transfiguration, if you will, um, which doesn't cancel out the bad, but which um, includes it um, and uh, carries it with him in a way that potentially um, offers a way of healing. Um, so there's Moses. On the other hand, we have Elijah, not dissimilar, um, big leader who has this particular moment with uh, calling down fire from heaven. Fire comes down and consumes uh, the altar as he asked for from God, understandably, uh, at that moment, he has a fairly inflated ego. <laughs> uh, he's uh, just won this battle. And um, uh, and he goes and uh, slaughters 400 of his enemies. Similar kind of thing to Moses. Here we are. Great moment. Uh, and then the result is... Uh, is in fact uh, incredible violence and he of course takes off to uh, runs away immediately um, takes off to a desert place uh, goes into a cave and experiences uh, well a fire a tornado and an earthquake um, symbols really of the inner violence of himself uh, what the, the, the turmoil, the, the violence that he carries within him. Um, and so these manifestations of his inner violence, um, we're told quite explicitly in the text, God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the fire. God was not uh, in the, the wind. Um, and instead what we hear is God, uh, there was uh, what's variously translated as a, still small voice um, or perhaps a hovering stillness. Um, it's a moment of quiet in which God is said to be present. Uh, it's that peace, peaceableness in which God is said to be present. Um, and that, uh, uh, that transformation, I think, of Elijah from someone of enormous violence um, to someone who can hear in silence the still small voice, the hovering stillness um, is a part of his transformation, his, if you like, transfiguration. Um, these two men, neither of whom have had their uh, great violence cancelled out, stand with Jesus, um, as he is transfigured on the mountaintop. Um, of course, Peter uh, leaps into action, <laughs> as always, particularly when he's scared. That's his, uh, his go-to. And uh, he suggests, of course, that we... that. Uh, they create three booths or three temporary shelters there um, 
for, uh, for Mo one for Moses, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, uh, so they can stay there. Of course, we could riff off the uh, Jewish uh, festival of Sukkot uh, and all of the, the allusions there to the wilderness journey, but I wonder whether just staying with his fear uh, and the way that drives him to action um, is actually a better way to, to go with this. Um, what are the fears we, wh what are we driven to when we are afraid? What are the fears that um, cause us to either leap into action or to run away, to fight? And how do those, our, how does our reaction to those fears rather than our um, facing them, our remaining vulnerable to them, actually contribute to creating our false self, our reinforcing of our false self? How do those, how does our reaction to those fears prevent our transfiguration, our own transfiguration? And then finally, we have, of course, we have God. In the cloud, the unmistakable presence of God, his presence uh, um, often in, in the Hebrew scriptures does appear in the form of a cloud, um, which descends particularly while they're in the wilderness, um, descends onto the tabernacle during the day. They follow a pillar of uh, fire by night, uh, but they have this pillar of cloud in which God uh, is present during the day. And so here again, we see the presence of God descending as a cloud, a uh, cloud that in fact overshadows um, and obscures, which is odd in a lot of ways. A 14th century mystic um, who wrote the cloud of unknowing uh, writes about God's presence as a cloud, uh, as a cloud that in fact obscures, that mystifies, um, and that it's only in our letting go of our assumptions or our um, desire for control because of knowing uh, or, or by knowing um, that we come to encounter the God who is beyond all, um, beyond all knowing. Uh, who is in fact mystery. Um, for those of us who, um, for whom con contemplation is, um, has been a gift, uh, we come up against this regularly, right? Like, <laughs> um, uh, God is mystery. Um, God can never be fully known. And in actual fact, contemplation very often leaves us with more questions than answers. Um, and even a seeming absence at times. Mm. So these, I guess the, for me, this is the invitation of this passage to undergo, is to undergo our own Transfiguration. Um, through contemplation of 
the one who has gone before us, who is the prototype, the, um, uh, the forerunner, the one who uh, has gone before us, the first fruits, if you like. Um, and to hear with him the voice of God saying, you are my beloved. Mm. You are my beloved. And to allow that truth to so permeate who we are that it um, that we are transfigured, that we're able to hold our pain and not be driven by it. We're able to know our fears and not be twisted by them. Um, that we're able to see others for who they are and not simply how they can be used. Um, it is a way of seeing, I suppose. Um, there's a um, an activity that uh, I often do in, uh, or a reflection, if you like, that I often do in um, Christian uh, nonviolence trainings. Um, and I thought I thought maybe we could do it. <laughs> um, I don't know whether that that works for you guys, but um, it's just a very short reflection um, that people have found. That, Often when I do trainings, this is one of the most powerful moments for people. Um, so I just, just want to invite you to close your eyes if you um, are able to find a, a position that's comfortable. Um, uh, and just, just listen and take it in as much as you can. You don't need to be here today listening to this podcast or wherever you are. You don't need to be part of a church. You don't have to work for justice, truthfully. You don't have to be nice to people or hospitable. You don't have to work hard. You don't need to be well-behaved or useful or nice or kind. You don't even need to want the world to be better than it is in order for God to love you. You don't need to be any of those things in order for God to love you. The truth is you could lie in bed for the rest of your life. You could indulge yourself. You could become cruel. You could become selfish and bitter and unkind. And it wouldn't change God's love for you one bit. Not even a bit. You are utterly adored by God. In fact, you're more than just loved, you are liked. God likes you. Not you as you could be. Not you as your best self on your best day. You as you are right now. And even on your worst day. And that is true. No matter what you've ever done or ever will do. What I'll often do is invite people just to respond with a word, I guess, of how that, um, how it feels to hear that. So you may just want to think of that in your mind or, I don't know, 
say it into the chat or <laughs> say it out loud if you want to. I guess what part of why I do that in trainings is to give people a sense of what it is when our nonviolence operates not from a place of self-righteousness, mm -hmm. but of response to the love that we've already been shown, the grace, the freedom that we already have um, in Jesus. Um, and that it's that love that transfigures us, um, that changes us, that calls us to a better place rather than um, flogging ourselves or um, uh, you know having requirements placed on us. Um, when we when we act out of that. Uh, we're free to make choices. Um, we're free to respond in love to people who might treat us badly. Um, yeah. That's powerful. Thank you. Thank you. I love you, Simo. <laughs> you you're a gift you you really are deeply thankful for your friendship and uh the opportunity to to share you with others hmm. um uh thank you for not just what you share but where it comes from and uh, the, the spaciousness in which you trust the spirit to move in others lives um uh can even come across on a podcast, which is a special thing. So um, the, the fact that you've given up time today to, to minister to us and, and walk us through a, a passage, um, yeah, we're just deeply appreciative for that. Yeah. No worries. Pleasure. You've so also, you put on a new, I have a new bucket list, which is I need to somehow, some way, uh, make space to find my way into a Baptist monastery now. That is, <laughs> I didn't even know that existed, but um, talk about finding your true self. I'm like, <laughs> my inner self is alive. Like, I didn't know those things uh, beyond like how, you know, you try to marry these things in your life, but in terms Absolutely. of practice, that's beautiful. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's been a gift gift to me too. And um, yeah, has made sense of, of so much of my own uh, vocation that, it, like you, I, I had no idea was even possible. So, mm. Mm. so I mean, if, if people are wanting to um, uh, learn of you, um, connect, what are ways that people can do so? Oh, dear, I'm terrible at, um, uh, like, I, I, I kind of live a life of, chosen obscurity <laughs> so connecting with people isn't um what i do well uh, like outside of um i guess folks who rock up at the door so that's one way you can connect 
um, is rock up at Grace Tree. Uh, we're here in Wurundjeri country, place now called Coburg um, uh, on Nicholson Street. Uh, so you can look up Grace Tree and connect that way um, or just shoot me an email. I can give you my email address and uh, shoot me an email and we can connect. I don't really do social media that well. Uh, I try to avoid it as much as possible. So um, yeah, that's probably the best way is email or just um, just drop by. I'm here present for that exact purpose. Wonderful. Yep. Thanks, my friend. Love to no the fam. No worries. Good to chat. Thanks, mate. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.